Good morning, city life, city lifers and visitors. Good morning. Welcome to church. Welcome to our gathering online. Glad that you're here. Uh, if you're visiting, if you're here for the first time or if you've been here for a while, I, I've been saying it for a number of weeks now, reach out in our notes section below. We have this uh, link to hit I'm new. Let us know that you're here. We want to reach out. We want to live this life together with you. And so, uh, yeah, connect with us. I'm here for a phone call, a Zoom call, a coffee rendezvous. Just let me know. Uh, we, we, want, we are passionate about living this life together. And so um, we want to be a, a home for anyone in the area, anyone in Jersey City. Today we have a lot to get through, so we are just going to jump right on in. And we're going to start by talking about this quote from uh, an unlikely source. I really, uh, uh, he's really popular, he's really in pop culture a lot. Uh, I think many of us will know him, but he's a physicist, I think an astrophysicist to be exact, but he is uh, really quite smart and a great speaker. His name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And one time he held this masterclass online and I got to watch some of it and he said something that I just really gravitated towards. And I think can speak, even though he is not a Christian, can speak to Christians and really anyone trying to learn about anything. He says that one of the great challenges in the world is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right, but not enough about a subject to know you're wrong. And I, I gravitate to that. Today, I want to start with this word of reminder for all of us about the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes over and over and over again show us that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this the way we came into this. We cannot leave the Beatitudes being the exact same person that you were when you came into them. That the word that is synonymous with the Christian life is change of realizing I need to change, I, like I can't, I shouldn't stay where I'm at, I need to change, I need to grow, I need, I need more Lord, I need a new heart, I need so many new things. That the, the status of a person who follows Christ is one of change all the time. With the Beatitudes saying like, Lord, change my character and my conduct, change me. That, uh, I want to grow in intimacy. I want to grow in depth. I want to grow in knowing you better and looking more like you and resembling you more. I want to grow in my assurance and security of knowing that I belong to the King. And so I need to change. And so if we are not changing, then something needs to change in our lives. If we are not changing, something needs to change. That change is a vital ingredient to knowing and always growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Every week in our Beatitudes, every week of every series, but especially the Beatitudes, our posture should be like, Lord, change something in me. Produce something in me that I know I cannot do in my own heart, in my own life. That one of the biggest evidences of Christ in your life is that you are changing and that you are okay with that. Whether you're a person who loves change or whether you're a person who hates change, that wants everything to remain the same, we need to change. We need to say, God, change me with your word. And so what is it about change that is coming into our character and our conduct this week? Well, Jesus 
thousands of years ago, went on a hillside, and he also said, blessed are the makers of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That you are blessed, you are filled up, you are profoundly satisfied, profoundly happy, profoundly like that metaphor of the cup we've been using. You are a filled up cup when you are a maker of peace, when you are a pursuer of peace, when you are an establisher of peace. And people will look at you and see and know that there is something about you, that there is something different, that you must belong to something that is significant, something that is not like the other people. People will know that you belong to a God who is loving and who loves them and who gives of himself for all of us. And so let us pray and read God's word and then start this journey like, Lord, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? because I want to look like your kid. And so uh, please join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day and I thank you for everyone that's here with us, Lord. I thank you that you are so good and gracious and merciful to us. Thank you that you care and that you even walk us down change gently most of the time. Lord, thank you that you know everything that we need and that you provide all of that yourself, Lord. And I pray specifically for peacemaking, specifically for your word today about what it means to be a pursuer and bringer and builder of your peace in this world that cannot even define what true peace really is. And so, Lord, we give you this space. Holy Spirit, I welcome you right now into the preaching of your word. I welcome you into the hearing of your word, that the implementing of your word, Lord, change us change something about our hearts this morning and in this week produce something mighty in us we love you lord we give you permission i give you permission to be here lord with me right now that i be speaking your words and not my own i love you and i pray all this in jesus's mighty name amen amen so today we are still in our beatitude sermon series still in matthew chapter 5 but today we're going to be at verses 1 through nine. And so let's read God's word together. God's word says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or like how the Hebrew New Testament translates it. How blessed are those who make peace, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's first dive in by talking about children. This week, I always go into these sermons and my prep, like asking like, Lord, even how should I present this? And normally up until now, we've been, okay, what is the beatitude? And then what is the blessing, the promise? And we'll go that way. But this week I find it so appropriate to start from the back and move our way to the beginning 
Because really, the promise is what shapes the beginning. It's like here is saying that you are a child of God when you make peace in this world. You will be seen as a child of God. People will look at you and say, well, like, there's just something different about that person. Everywhere they go, things work out or... You're, I don't ever argue with them. I don't see them fighting. I don't see them yelling. I don't see them gossiping. I don't see these things. There's something different about them. And I love that this beatitude goes there. I love that it says like you will, people will know you belong to something special. They would know you belong to God with the amount of peace that is evident in your life. I, I was thinking about... Uh, the movie Step Brothers this week, which is very funny. Um, I don't know if I can endorse it here, but because it's inappropriate at times, definitely. Uh, but in, in my younger years, I watched it, and I think it's a hilarious movie. And uh, the the premise of the movie, if you haven't seen it, is that Will Ferrell and John C. Riley's characters are in their mid forties, and they are still like teenagers. They're still little kids. They don't work. They live at home. They've never left their home. They're just like have no ambition in life. And they're just really wasting their whole lives, not doing anything. But their parents still support them, keep them up and pay for everything. And there's this one part and their parents are marrying, right? Stepbrothers, the whole premise. And there's one point where John C. Riley's character is arguing with his dad. His dad, I'm sure they had a million of these conversations. His dad is just like, why don't you work? Like, go get a job. What are you doing with your life? Go pursue something. And the John C. Riley's character at one point says like, dad, you know that I just want to be in the family business. And okay, nepotism is never a good thing, but it is especially never a good thing in this scenario because his dad is a doctor. And if there's one job that nobody wants nepotism to be the reason why someone is employed, it's uh, being my doctor or anyone's doctor. And it's just that has made me think about this movie a lot this week because like we will be chips off the old block. We will be seen like people will know who we belong to when there is peace evident in our life. When we are peaceful people, but more than just what's going on in the inside, when peace is a byproduct of what we do of how we work, of how we commute, of like our interactions on the street with strangers or with coworkers or with somebody we know who's out to get us. This, this beatitude is saying, when you make peace part of what you do, or what not part of what you do, if peacemaking is what you do, then you will be belong to God. People will know that you're, you are tied to Him, that there's something good about Him, that you have this home in him, that you that there's something more. You don't like you don't just you're not one of these Christians that just talks about it, but you show me, and I can see that you are different than the rest. That when we make peace, we show that we belong to God, and we are all agents of this peace. John 13, 35 is really interesting. It's talking about love, but I think it communicates the perfect picture of this beatitude. John 13, 35 says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, if you have love for one another. I just, I love that, and I think it applies so beautifully to this peacemaking beatitude. 
You know, you don't always have to be loud. You don't always have to be that Christian. You don't have to be the loudest person in the room. People will know that you belong to God if peace is evident in your life. And you know why? Because God is all about peace. Everything that he does is peace soaked in it. See, Romans 16 teaches us that a God is, he's called the God, our God of peace. So he is peace, him and his essence and his being. He is our peace. We'll talk about that in a second. And then Luke 19 also tells us that heaven, where he lives, his home, his kingdom, is a place of perfect peace. So not only is he peace in his person, but where he lives, where he dwells, peace also dwells there with him perfectly. So not only is he peace, he lives in peace. And then Colossians 1 also tells us that he has made peace possible through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Not only is he peace, but he lives in peace. Where he is, peace reigns. And then not only that, but he made peace possible for all of us by the work of Jesus on the cross. He is the establisher of peace in this world. And so I've already said peace a million times. We just talked about how like the promise here is that we will be children of God and people will see it. And I've said the word peace probably 75 times already, but what really is peace and how does it differ from how the world thinks of peace? Let's talk about peace defined. One of the major themes for our whole church this year is maturity. That is one of our three main words for this year. Like, Lord, how do we, how do we go deeper? How do we keep progressing? How do we take steps? How do we mature and grow up? How do we become spiritual teenagers into early adulthood. Like, Lord, like move us down somewhere. We want to be somewhere new and we want it to be a healthy, so mature us. And so one of part of this that the Beatitude series has done really well is that it has made us leave this 10,000 view of everything and get down really like messing, putting our hands over all of this, getting dirty with God's word in, in a good way of saying like, Lord, what are these things and how do they differ from one another? Because I don't want to generally know these qualities. I want to intimately know these. I want to know how mourning is different than meekness, excuse me, or how meekness differs from grace, like Lord, or humility, like Lord, teach us the intricacies, like the expertise of knowing these things, of, of living them out, because I can't generally live for all of these things. I need to like uniquely know what these means. And so what does peace really mean? And first, let's turn to how the fact that this world cannot offer a good definition of the word peace. This is the dictionary definition of peace. This is what is actually in our dictionaries. And I find it to be quite shallow. The first entry is that uh, peace is the freedom from disturbance or tranquility. A freedom of disturbance. Like, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I get that, right? I get what they're trying to say. And the, the second definition entry, it says a state or a period in which there is no war or a war has ended. So in, in other words, to summarize this, I think adequately, another way of saying this in a normal way would be the absence of conflict. But I find that to be such a bad explanation for what peace really is. 
Like, think about it like this. In any other area of life, how can you really define what something is solely or primarily by talking about what it's not? Like, okay, peace isn't just the lack of bad things happening to me. Peace in these definitions is saying, okay, you know what? Peace is when things are going my way or when the things that I don't want to happen are happening to me then I have no peace. I find that to be a really shallow explanation of peace, one that really doesn't offer us a window as to what peace actually is. And I've been thinking about that. I think that's just also really appropriate because our definition of peace is not the lack of something, but the very real presence of the best thing. It's not this absence of conflict. It's not like that life is going my way. It's not even like globally like wars. Like no peace, we can be in just as much conflict when there is no war. It's called the Cold War. It's called US foreign relations with China, currently even. And so like what really is peace? Because this worldly definition of like this this lack of conflict doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. In mission year, uh, the program that took me to Chicago that I talk about quite often, you're put into these Christian uh, teams, right? You don't do your year alone. The whole point of it is that you do it in this intentional Christian community. And so you're put on this team with uh, other believers who are different than you, who are racially or ethnically different than you, who are probably not your same age from a very different part of the country or the world, and you're supposed to figure it out together. And even whenever you bring people, Christian or not, from like that much diversity into a place, there's gonna be conflict. But one of the things that we talk about is that conflict isn't peace's enemy. Often in a fallen world with fallen people, conflict is often a great ingredient to bringing unity, to bringing depth and maturity and a deepening. And so we can't just define peace as a lack of conflict because in this world, with us, being in complete conflict can produce many great things. And I'm not talking about things that are like purely evil all the time. I'm talking about good, healthy, normal conflict can be a great thing. And so what is peace? If peace is not just a lack of conflict, what is peace? What does scripture say peace is? Like, Lord, peace isn't just the lack of bad things happening, but it's that your very real presence is here with me. Peace in Scripture incorporates a lot of things. But today I want to talk about what I think is, number one, the primary definition of what God says peace is, and then a very real practical way of living and peacemaking in our lives one that people will see and be drawn to. And so what is the definition? The first definition, the overarching definition of what peace is, isn't the lack of something, but it's right relationship with God. That real peace is described as being in a loving, right relationship with God. Scripture says this, Colossians 1, Verses 19 and 20, it says this, For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. First part of that definition is that God has made a way for us to be right with him for the hostility to go away, but to bring reconciliation between my broken spirit and him because he loves me, because he loves us. And he made a way for us to be back with him. Ephesians 2, 14, 16 say this, for he himself is our peace, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Before Christ, all of us, because we have sin in our beings, because that is where we are distracted to all the time, we have this hostility with God that Scripture talks about many places, but God did not want this to be the case because He does not want any one of us to perish, but He made a way by giving us of His Son to make peace between us and the Lord. And so peace is not the lack of bad things, but it's God, His presence, His being in my life. Is that I can be right with Him. Is that we, if we just say yes to what Jesus did on the cross, we can be in good standing with Him and have this peace that permeates every part of our soul and our spirit where we know that we are destined for being where He is, which we've already talked about, which is soaked in peace. Peace isn't the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of God. And it's the believing heart saying like, Lord, I, I, I accept that I needed this, and I accept your work on the cross to make me okay with you. I, I think about how worldly meditation, right? Um, in other world religions and also just like in pop culture, meditation is this pursuit of emptying ourselves, right? And for some people, it, it, they gravitate and it really helps them because they need last week's sermon, right? Being pure in heart, being pulled in every direction of living for a million things. So they need to hear last week's sermon. But the whole point of Christian meditation, if you've never heard of it or tried it, Christian meditation has one goal in mind. It's not to empty ourselves. It's not nothingness. But it's to put Jesus into our being more and more and more. Not to empty, but to fill. Fill our hearts fill our minds, fill everything that we do and soak our lives with Christ because when we have Christ, then we have his peace. And so Christian meditation does bring us peace, but it brings us a peace by filling us up with his presence. And so that is the number one definition of peace, of what the Bible says is peace. It's not the lack of anything. It is totally the addition of God being at the center of who we are. 
of saying yes to him as our Lord and as our Savior, and then bringing us in right relationship to the Father, because the Father loves us. And secondly, like the other part of peace, there's so much to talk about with peace today. Like my job as pastor was to about narrowing down what we would talk about. It was definitely not choosing, picking and choosing and trying to find what to talk about. No, but it was talking about the better things. And for us, I think the best expression of peacemaking that we can do on a day-to-day basis, one that is so tangible, one that like just confounds the world, is that we have been called to look like our Father in making peace by loving our enemies. By loving the people, not just the people who we should be loving, who it's easy to love, but the people who hate us and revile us and the people who are angry at us at work or who want to see us fall for whatever reason, those like making peace is about living after those people as well. And we find that rooted in Matthew chapter 5, we don't even have to leave the chapter that we're in. This is outside of the Beatitudes, but this is what Jesus also said on that hillside. He said, starting in verse 43, You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is why so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I love that. I love how Jesus ties this back with the peacemaking. In peacemaking, we will be, people will see that we are sons of God. And then here, loving our enemy is, an ev- is a sign that we are God's children. And so practicing peace isn't just... It's primarily and first accepting that Jesus, what he did on the cross and how we now can have peaceful relationship with Jesus, but it's also extending that peace everywhere that we go and and making peace and going after and living in love and practicing love with the people who least deserve it from us because we were all people who least deserved it from him, that we are so secure in God's ability to care for us that we are so secure in God's ability that he loves us and affirms who we are, that we extend this peace, this building back up of relationships to people who are our enemies, that we are called to be people as God's children, to be in the work of peacemaking by building and restoring relationships, broken relationships, the relationships that we ourselves want to turn our backs on because it is very easy to love people who love us. It is very quite difficult to bring people peace who hate us. And so let's wrap up today by talking about something that's uh, how peacemaking is really costly. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we covered today is, is also how costly peacemaking is. Uh, we are, I think most of us are afraid of being peacemakers because we inherently know that it comes at a cost and it, re- and it does. And that's affirmed in scripture. And so I wanted to highlight at least two areas of peacemaking that I know each and every single one of us are afraid of. And the first one is that peacemaking comes at a cost. Peacemaking always comes at a personal cost to us. It did to God. It cost him his son. His son, his perfect son, had to die on the cross so that us people can have this right relationship to him. 
But I, I love how God has instilled this in the culture of the Bedouin people. The Bedouin people, if you haven't heard about them, they're this like incredibly cool nomadic desert people who live in the deserts of the Middle East. They have they don't belong to a nation. They're just these people, these travelers. Bedouin means uh, exposed in Arabic, and they uh, for for millennia have had parts of their culture that were very similar to what Jesus's culture in back in the day was like. And one of the things that is in their culture that I think so perfectly, so beautifully communicates the gospel and peacemaking is their, one of their tent ceremonies. If you Google Bedouin people, one of the first things that will come up is that they are a hospitable people. They are super hospital. They care about hospitality. And they have this, uh, they have like a coffee hospitality uh, with, that is really cool. You should look into it. But they have this one with the tent and the firstborn son. And in this ceremony, when, when this Bedouin father, when the leader of the tribe is going to welcome someone in, he welcomes them into his tent and he says, come, come. And he has this demonstration of how far he will go to protect his new guests. He calls his firstborn son, who represents his lineage, his future, um, his vitality, his strength, his love, right? His firstborn son who will carry on the name, who will carry on his legacy. And he gives his son a sword and he tells his son to go at the door or at the entrance of the tent. And then he tells to his guests, he, he expresses to them how serious he is about keeping them safe and establishing peace between them. He says, my firstborn son will die before any harm comes to you. You are my guest. You are in my home. I will protect you. And I find that to be such a beautiful picture of what God did on the cross with Jesus, that he, that peacemaking comes at a cost. That it cost God his firstborn son, and so it should cost us something very dearly as well. That we are called to be people who say, like, Lord, whatever the price is to making peace, of telling people all over the world about who you are, then I'll pay that price. Or like, Lord, if it's about like whatever the price for me to establish a right relationship with an enemy, as long as it's okay and it doesn't go against purity or it doesn't go against you or pursuing you, like, Lord, I will pay that price because I believe in your peacemaking because you have given up so much for me. And so I need to be about telling people about having a right relationship with you and righting all of my wrongs and being a peacemaker and everything that I do. And so, Lord, it's going to cost me. And so peacemaking is costly. It really is. How much are we willing to pray a price for it? Because Jesus tells us that we will be his sons and his daughters when we are peacemakers. And then the second part of this, like why we resist peace often, is because we just know that peacemaking doesn't always work. When I was in Chicago, uh, I worked at the homeless ministry. And there was this one guy who I particularly hit it off really well with. And he was awesome. He was so great. Like, he was very supportive. And then one day, I called him out for something that I thought was so minor in front of my boss and in front of some of his guys. And what it did to him, man, it made him hate me. And I, I don't use that word casually. When I would see him, he would tell me, the restraints that he would go through to not attack me. This man 
who was my friend started to hate me. And this homeless man who was on the street day and night chose to not come to this ministry because I was in the room. And for a long time, I was not okay with that. And so because I lived in the neighborhood, I still saw him frequently. And for a long time, I went to him to right this wrong. Be like, man, I am so sorry. I'm sorry for calling you out in front of the guys. Like, I'm so sorry that I made you feel this way. And I apologize for everything that I thought was appropriate, everything that was right. And I like extended myself and I like, I poured myself out to him like, man, I, I just want to help you. I want to, I want to give you food. I want to give you clothes. Like, I want to give you a place to stay. Like, how, let me help you. Let me like turn you from my enemy back into my friend. And he never, we never got back there because we need to realize that we all have free choice and people can say no to us. But God calls us to be peacemakers even when others say no. Even when it will lead to us being reviled and rejected. That's okay. That's a costly price, but I'll pay it because I need to tell people that Jesus loves them and I need to right all of my wrongs with people. I need to serve the people that even hate me who consider themselves to be my enemy. That is the high cost of what peacemaking really means. It is not an easy thing. If anyone thinks that we can be peacemakers without losing, then we don't understand what the Bible is talking to us about peacemaking. And so how do we summarize this really quick? Like These last couple of weeks I've been praying, like God, show me a way to talk about this characteristic in in a different way in a different portion of scripture one that we might not naturally go to but lord like what does how have you shown your peacemaking to us somewhere else in scripture and all week my head kept on going back to the creation story all week i have been going back to creation and and this is why I, i love the way god tells creation he says that before anything was here before anything was made he was somehow hovering over the waters. And we're like, okay, like it can't be formless and void, right? And then still all this water be there, right? You even made water on one of the days of creation. Like, God, what are you communicating to us here? In the ancient Near Eastern view, chaotic waters were like the symbol of evil. And so what God is telling us is that he was surrounded by all of this chaos and somehow he was still perfectly God in himself, all three persons just hovering there, waiting for the right moment to start creating. Somehow all that evil did not change who he was. He was just hovering there. The words there are used as like, like a mother hen sitting on her eggs waiting for them to hatch. And then all of a sudden, at the right time, God starts moving and creating and pushing back all of this chaos and instilling his order day after day, like on the first three days making something and then on the congruent three days filling those things up. And his order and his peace was being established so much that so where he started in all of that chaos the end result of creation was that God built somewhere that was good and beautiful and perfect to be lived in with him. That the end result was that everything he made, he said, was good. And it was. And this is what I think peacemaking is all about. It's like, 
establishing these places where we can live with God first and then we can live with one another and, and being inviting people, yes, even our enemies to come live in this place and saying, God is so good. Come here, follow me. Let's live in this place with him. I'll show you how sweet God can be. I'll show you how loving God can be, even if it comes at a cost to myself. Because on the hillside, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that we will be blessed, profoundly blessed, profoundly filled up when we are pursuers of peace, which will make people know that we belong to God. We will do the family business. We will be doing what our dad does, making peace. He is peace, and he lives in peace, and he brings people into his peace. And so, church, let us be a people of peacemakers who know what it's like to be living in God's peace and sharing it even to our most bitter of enemies because that's what we are called to do. So, church, we love you. Let us be peacemakers on our MC calls, on our prayer calls, whenever we're together. We love you. We can't wait to be together in person soon, and uh, we'll see each other soon. Love you.